would turn with me to the book of Ruth, chapter four. The book of Ruth, chapter four, and and this is it. This is this is it. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna end our series on the book of Ruth. We've been here for six weeks now. Uh, so we went from twelve weeks with the Ten Commandments to six weeks with the book of Ruth. Uh, so will the next sermon series be three weeks? I don't know. Actually, I do know, but um, it's, it'll be four weeks. So um, we'll be we'll be talking about Advent. Um, here at the end of Ruth, just like any good story, which this is one of the greatest stories ever told, uh, it being in the Bible, a very short story as well, uh, not all a chick flick, there is some dude stuff in here as well. Um, and so at the end, just like any good story, you have the climax that is bringing everything to a head, everything to a point, and then you have the meaning of the book that is revealed at the very end. So what I want to do today is actually look at the purpose of Ruth and the meaning of this book and summarize all that we've covered so far and then point to Jesus Christ, which is what we ought to always do in any of our preaching. Let's start reading here on the only section that we have not read. So this will complete the entire book of Ruth. We've read it in church, uh, an entire book. We won't really get to say that much, but, but here's one where we have done that. Notice here in Ruth chapter 4, verse... 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may His name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. And Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. That concludes the book of Ruth. Let us pray. Jesus, thank You so much for your, your Holy Word. How much of a privilege it is that we have a bound copy right before us that we can study, that we can learn and hide in our hearts. May we be able to do that this morning as we look at Your Word. Would You, would you make it come alive in Your Spirit who is the original author of these words to us, Lord. May we grasp here what You want us to this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ruth is the only book in the entire Bible that ends on a personal name. David. Only book. Uh, Which this name, David, has great significance in all of the Scripture. uh, And quite frankly, hints us and points us toward the purpose of this little book which again, as I'll remind you, is 
snug between, tucked between the judges period, which is very dark and evil. And what is the constant refrain here? There was no king in Israel. Therefore, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Another bad scene. There was no king in Israel. Another bad scene. There was no king in Israel. What's the point in Judges? There's no king. Therefore, there's whatever you want to do. And then you get Ruth. A little bitty four chapter book. And then you get Samuel. Where you're still in the Judges period. Remember, Ruth is in the Judges period. Samuel starts out with the Judges period. Samuel is a judge himself. And you move toward the monarchy. You move toward kingship. Now, David is not the first king, of course, but he is the second. The first king fails. David does not. Um, And so, these books complement one another, but you don't know how you get David unless you have Ruth. You see how it fits in here? It's tugged between there because... Judges is asking, why is there no king? Where is King David? In other words, where's our King David? Samuel is showing us how you get King David to the throne, which is quite a process. And Ruth tells us where even David came from. Uh, And so these books are complementary, and whoever organized them put them in this manner Uh, for our time today and for us to understand that. Now, in chapter 1, you'll remember that a godly family decides to leave food world, Bethlehem, remember? House of bread. To go to a foreign land because there was no bread in the house of bread. Uh, There was no food in food world. And so they leave to go to Moab, which is a pagan city that worships Chemosh who is a god there, um, who, remember, Moab has its roots in an incestuous relationship in Genesis between Lot and his daughters after Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, It is a place elsewhere where people go and they die. Um, Here, it's a place where they sought to be fed and live. Interestingly, there may be bread there, but there's also death that comes. Elimelech, who leads the family there, dies. So too does his two sons, but not before they marry. They marry two pagan wives, which is just kind of a big deal here. You know, may not be a big deal to us, but here it's a big deal in Israel to do that, to marry a Gentile um, outside of the, the heritage of your Jewishness. <clears throat> and so they marry these two daughters, or these uh, girls, and they become uh, daughters-in-law to Naomi. Uh, Naomi loses everything. And she's resigned herself to just, you know, once you lose so much stuff, you just think, wow, just throw the whole thing away. I mean, you ever done that before? You know, trying to work on something. And, and part of it's still good, but you just, it's already torn up. Yeah, just throw the whole thing away. I don't even care anymore. That's what she's done with her life. She, just throw the whole thing away. Just call me bitter. I know my name means sweet. Call me bitter. Because God, she says this, God has turned things against me. And so she lost her husband. She lost her two sons. Is anybody catching that? Her two sons? She's lost everything. And now she has these, these daughters-in-law who, who they're, they're from a foreign land and she's going to go back home now. And she says, look, just, just, just I'm throwing out everything. Just go. Just go. I don't, I, you know what? Just let me live the rest of my life in bitterness. Mara is what you should call me. And so, Orpah, she says, okay, all right, I'll I'll go back home after much tears and crying and hugging and 
you know, all that thing. And, and then Ruth says, no, no, I'm no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to clean. It says she clings to Naomi. Isn't this a beautiful thing? Family. She doesn't have to, you see. It's actually probably better for her to stay behind. It's not her, but she's going to an unfamiliar land with a bunch of Jews who, who obviously are the elect of God. But instead, here she has a radical conversion to Yahweh. We're told this elsewhere in the book. Even here in the end, she's a loving person. She loves Naomi. She loves her, her mother-in-law. How many people can say that? I think my wife can. <laughs> I hope. Um, and so they go back, just the two of them. And they're poor. They don't have anything. That whole family has been emptied. And, and there's famine. And now they go back, and, and now food is provided in chapter 2, and also this character comes in who is Boaz. And she meets him in the field. He says, hey, who's that? And they say, well, this is Moabite. Again, from a, a foreigner. And so he says, well, look, you, sweetie, you need to work in my field. And don't go anywhere else. I've already instructed the young man not to touch you, not to mess with you. You're under my protection here. Just you, you glean here. You know, you pick up your cans. That's what this is the equivalent of. Picking up cans on the side of the road and selling those for money. You do that at my place only. And, and you know what, guys? Leave her some extra cans. Leave her some extra bushels behind so they have enough food. All right? Chapter 3, nothing's really happened since that point. They're, they're getting fed, but they still don't have the, the, so to speak, security of having a male to support them here. And you get in chapter 3 this very unique scene in the Bible where Ruth comes to Boaz and submits herself to him and essentially says, I want to marry you. I want to be your wife. And it's a great act of kindness because he's old, he's a bachelor, owns his own business, apparently never been married. And for her to do this is a great kindness, he says, much like she has already shown to Naomi, her mother-in-law. Again, Ruth is a beautiful person. Uh, both apparently inside and out. Um, and this is what you want to look for, not just the outside. Uh, you know, I remember, remember my dad, sometimes, and I had to be careful here, but my dad telling me this, this uh, joke, he said, you know, um, <laughs> that's, that's why you have to be careful. But he said, he said um, <laughs> if you know my dad, uh, he, said, he said, you know, this, this guy had this really pretty, pretty girl that he brought home, you know, to his, to his father and everything, and... and um, you know, Dad said, "Boys, you know she's 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 great looking and everything, but does she does she wash dishes? Does she clean? Does she does she like kids? Is she is she able to do those things? I mean, just just have a trophy wife and not have any help. Um, that's that's uh, boy, that's that's gonna be a tough life for you. Um, gladly, I got one who does both. She uh, can take care of our house just fine and all of our children." Praise be to God. Um, as you know, they would probably be dead if it was all up to me. And the house would be a pigsty um, with, four, with five men living in it. It, all, it turns that way within hours. Um, and se- except I have this beautiful young lady who continues to help us out to uh, freshen up our life and to make it more beautiful, who is Jessica Dagg. Um, and so, so here's the deal, is, is Ruth is beautiful both inside and out. She is a hard worker. That's what the Scripture says about her. She is also renowned in the town. She, she makes a name for herself very early on as a hard worker. Um, the reality is in a marriage, in family, everybody works. 
There, there's, no, there's no delineating. You do 50% and I... I mean, throw that stuff out the window. That, there is no 50%. Everybody gives 100%. Trust me, if you don't, then things aren't going to get done and, and bad things are going to come along your way. Um, that's what it means to be one. That's what it means to be married. Uh, marriage, marriage is tough, but it's the best thing in the world. Um, that's why it's the toughest thing in the world. The best things are always tough. Um, and then so in chapter 4, you finally get Boaz, who Naomi tells her, says, look, this guy's not going to sleep until he gets you. You know, If, if, you've, if you've offered yourself to him, he, he's going to get on top of that stuff very quickly and move on it. And so he won't rest. He does exactly that. Chapter 4 shows us 12 men gathering, which is the only scene where there's not females and males together. Um, and so there's 12 men at the city gate, and they're, they're, they're trying to decipher here what's going to happen to this piece of property, who he then drops the bomb on and says, look, you take the property, you take the girl. The guy says, I can't do that. That's going to mess up my own inheritance. I'm out. You count me out. Um, he did not want to redeem, in other words, Ruth and Naomi. Um, he didn't want it messing up his own inheritance. And so Boaz has the right to marry her. At the very end, right before our passage today, it's interesting that the people pray for this couple. So once the deal is sealed, they're going to get married. They pray for them and say, hey, we want you to be blessed and have children and essentially have an offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Then we come to our passage today where it says, So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Extremely important. Marriage, extremely important. The Bible begins with a marriage. It ends with a marriage. Uh, One is a physical marriage. At the beginning, Adam and Eve, you know, the first people that God creates is man and woman. Uh, Adam and Eve. And the end of the Bible has a spiritual wedding, which is Christ and His church. Christ being the groom, the church, us, being the bride. So in that sense, we're all the female in this relationship to God. We are the ones who He has provided for us. He has made a way for us. He is that way and we submit to that. We open ourselves up to that. We are the ones who are the respondent, not the initiator. Do you see some of this? these images here? That's what the Scripture is doing here with the male and female thing in marriage. When God says to submit, there's a deeper thing there. It's not just some kind of surface level chauvinism. No, that's, that's never the case in the Scripture. There's a deeper reality. We all submit in this room to one who is our husband, who is Christ the Lord. So let's not get off on our tangents and, and, and start bickering. In our, no, it's, it's Christ. He is the husbandman. He is the true one who gives Himself for us and lays down His life. Uh, which is truly love. So marriage is, is where we begin here in our text. And quite frankly, God is very concerned with marriage. Can I tell you that? He is very concerned with your marriage. The marriages in this room. Um, let's just say we don't care what's happened in the past. 
Let's look at right now. Where are you in your marriage? Right now. Let's not talk about the past. Let's, let's forgive the past. That's what Jesus is in the business of doing. Is forgiving. And He commands us to forgive. There's lots of things in all marriages that need to be forgiven. Trust me. I am a living example of that. And so too are you. We all need God's forgiveness in our marriages. That is a gift to the other person. It's not to be taken lightly, I understand. But, but doesn't forgiveness it often get offered to those who don't deserve it? Like me? Absolutely. Absolutely. It doesn't mean they're a good person. It doesn't mean that you've forgotten what they did to you or that you can erase it because you can't. But it means that you offer a gift that only God gives and now you are commanded to give and I am commanded to give. If you don't have forgiveness in your marriage, your marriage will not last. Or if it does, it will be a... a um, what do you call those? Remember those bugs that you always see attached to the, um, to the tree that's just a shell? You're like, oh cool, a bug. And just crumbles apart. What are those called? Sorry? Locust bee, there you go. It'd just be a locust shell. That's what your marriage will be. Nothing inside. Outside looks great. Inside, death. Marriage should be a place of life. It should be a place of joy. It should be a place of happiness. There's no easy marriage. Even even ones that, that look like they've got it all made often do not. So let's just be real this morning and pray for our marriages here. God doesn't want you to get divorced. He doesn't like that. Um, I understand there are, there are circumstances. And we're not here to talk about the exceptions. The rule is, don't get divorced. But look, again, hey, we're right here to now. God forgives. Praise be to God. If you've been unfaithful, praise be to God He can forgive that. And He can also make you a person that is truthful. He can keep you there. If there is resentfulness in marriage, that can be more destructive sometimes than unfaithfulness. You can kill the other person by your words. Do you not know that? Words are absolutely crucial. That's how God created the whole world. was through words. He gave us His Word. And words can kill the other person or they can build them up. You can build up your spouse. Treat them as if they were better than you. Now, I'm preaching to myself, okay? Don't think I'm talking to you only. I'm talking to myself. I need Jessica's words of encouragement. I need her prayers. I need her to build me up. I can't stand on my own. And she has graciously over the years done exactly that and in a way saved me. I'm not ashamed to say that. Saved me. Because we all understand who ultimately saves us, but it's Christ in her who saves me. And that's a real thing. That is a real thing my good friends. <laughs> you just don't understand. The night that, that I met Jessica, we were at church, um, and I did not know her, but I positioned myself in front of her 
so she would notice me. Um, I can sometimes be smart. And so afterward, I, I, I talked to her and I said, you know, hey, um, what's your name? You know, so on and so forth. And once I got to age, I was like, ooh, that's not good. Um, that's not good. 17. Okay. But, but then she reassured me that she was graduating from high school, about to turn 18. And I said, okay, okay, this, this may still be an option. I was graduating from college. She was graduating from high school. And so, so then she, I said, well, what do you... What do you believe that God wants you to... You know, I was pretty straightforward about it. I said, what do you think God wants you to do with your life after you graduate high school? And she said something that only the Spirit of God, I am very convinced, no joke, could, could bring about in this moment. Because she didn't know me from Adam. Uh, and so I said, you know, what do you believe God wants you to do? And she said, I really feel called to be a preacher's wife. I'd never heard in my life anyone say that as an occupation or as a goal in their life is to be a preacher's wife. So then in in all of my smoothness, I said, and all my suaveness, um, I said, I said, well, you you do know that I am a preacher, right? Um, (laughs) uh, So we kind of laughed about that and... and, um, and so I, I then told her, I said, well, look, um, you know, we need to maybe, maybe pursue this even further. So, uh, so we, we went on from there. And, and after 10 years now, nine years of marriage, um, she has been a saving grace in my life. And that's no joke. And um, praise God. Yeah, praise be to God for sure. And marriage can be like that. Marriage can be, it can either be saving or it can be damning. Um. And it's something you have to work for. This is not a marriage counseling session. But this is the Holy Spirit. This is God's Word saying marriage is important and you must work on that. And be forgiven. Look, don't, don't dwell back there. Alright, we've all done dumb. Sin is always insane. Have you ever noticed that? It is the most insane thing you can do in your life is sin, is lie, is cheat, is be unfaithful. All that stuff is just insane. Sometimes I look at myself children and say, what were you thinking? Sometimes God looks at me and says, what were you thinking? But we can be forgiven. Praise, praise the Lord. Out of this marriage in our text comes children. Children are a gift from God. The very first commandment, and we believe this at Harvest Point, we also practice it. The very first commandment in all the Bible that is told to Adam and Eve is to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Let me, let me translate that into, into the Marshall Dag version, um, the MDV. It'll be, it'll, it'll be out in the spring. I'm just kidding. Um, be fruitful and have babies. That's basically what it's saying. Marriage, the most natural thing in all of the world in a marriage is to have a baby. We've made it very unnatural to have a baby. Oh, you're pregnant. How'd that happen? That's the most odd question I've ever... Did, did you take biology? Um, I, ooh, how, did, how did you get pregnant? I mean, really? Are we going back there? We've so contracepted God's plan that we don't even understand that, that the two are connected as a gift as something that is the reward of two people coming together. This is also an image of the Holy Trinity. The Father loves the Son, and from that relationship, from that love, comes the Holy Spirit. Another, in other words. 
Two can be selfish. Once you add the child in there, that goes out the window. This is a gift from God. It happens here. And what, look at this. Notice this. I love it. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore. Why did it have to say conception? Well, because the Bible is very clear that life begins at conception. That's not a political idea. That's a biblical one. Why do we talk about in the Apostles' Creed the virginal conception? Not the virginal birth. The virginal conception. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Then born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus' earthly life began at conception. Not at birth. The Old Testament protects women who are pregnant. Remember the eye for an eye, two for two thing? The context of that, go back and read it, is actually a pregnant woman. In other words, if you hit a pregnant woman and the baby comes out without an eye, you lose your eye. You lose your tooth. You lose your life. Why? Because it was murder. That's why. In the womb. Before they had sonograms. Before they had 4D. God is already protecting in the Old Testament and in the New Testament life in the womb. It's not up for debate in the Bible. Notice this. A marriage, then baby, and this baby. What's the significance? Why are you making a big deal about about this this baby? (laughs) This baby. If we don't get this baby, we don't get Jesus. Plain and simple. We don't get this baby, we don't get Jesus. Now, Jesus is is in a very interesting heritage, is He not? Ruth, a Moabite, not a Jew, not one of the chosen ones, not one of God's elect people. Ruth, who else? Bathsheba, who was a Hittite. How do you know that? Uriah the what? Hittite. Right? Think of Rahab, who was a Canaanite. Tamar, who was a Canaanite. Canaanite, Canaanite, Moabite, Hittite. All the mosquito bites. Right? (laughs) What I call them. They make it into the very holy lineage of Jesus that is recorded in Matthew. Now, first of all, it's very odd to put women in your lineage, quite frankly, in the ancient world. You didn't do that. Why? Because ladies did not in the ancient world have um, credibility in the court system, in the legal system. In other words, if you testified against something, it, it wouldn't mean as much as a man. Uh, thanks be to God that that has changed. It's not biblical, um, but it was the way things were practiced. And yet the Bible is bold enough to say, you know what? We're going to put a bunch of ladies in there. And you know what? A bunch of ladies who sin sexually. Who was Tamar? What did she do? She tricked Judah. God's holy line that He was going to bring salvation through. He tricked Judah. She tricked Judah into having sex with her so that she could conceive and carry on the line. The name. Sexual sin. She prostituted herself. Uh, Rahab, a prostitute in Canaan. Right? Who the spies come to and they say, hey, you know, where can we go in the city to not get unnoticed? You know, nobody's going to really question, oh, well, the prostitute's house. Jimmy's. 
right? Go to Jimmy's. Nobody's, nobody's going to question you there at Jimmy's. So they go to Jimmy's. No, this is, this is, they go to the prostitute's house, and they hide there. And she protects them, and, and that part of this, Jimmy's is what saved the city. Can you believe that? You can't make this stuff up. The Bible's amazing. The Bible, the, have you not read it? Is everybody, is everybody okay? Anybody read the Bible? Um, it's pretty crazy stuff that's happening in here. Think, uh, yeah, Jim, remember, we're dealing with the MVD, or the MDV, uh, Marshall Dag version. Um, so then, then you get Bathsheba, who again is, is an adulterous relationship. All of four of these ladies sin sexually, except for Ruth. Except for Ruth, alright? Now, now, what is that saying? What's well, saying that when Jesus comes and God says, you know what? This was done without sex. In other words, my son came without any sex. In other words, no one had sex to bring about Jesus Christ in Mary. It was the Holy Spirit who conceived in her, and then he was born from a virgin. Alright? That's has anybody ever thought that that's pretty wild. That's that's not normal. That is an exception to the rule of having babies. And so wasn't there going to be a lot of people who said, yeah, right. I'm sure that's what happened. Then you could point to the Old Testament and say, well, is it so odd that God would use unique things such as prostitutes, such as people who trick people to have sex with them so they can carry on the line? You see what it, in in the Jews' own tradition they have some very interesting scenarios that go on. It was all about God's design. God can use the worst of situations to bring about the best of situations. Don't let your past again hold you down. Amen. <laughs> Instead, He can resurrect a new life from those bad things. Praise the Lord for that, <laughs> if I might say so myself. <laughs> and so, it's not so unique that God would bring about something amazing in Jesus Christ, in Mary, this truthful, blessed woman who we'll talk about more in the Advent season. And so you get babies, you get marriage, and then you get David. David. What's the significance of David? <laughs> Why David? Well, again, the judges' period is calling for a man like David. A man after God's own heart who is a war- Have you ever thought about David? I mean, he is of all people in the Scripture, in my opinion, besides Jesus Christ, of course, a man's man. He can fight on one hand and kill all kinds of people. He, he's, the na- you know, he's in Devgru. He's the, he's the Navy SEAL guy. He's training the Navy SEALs. Elite forces. And even Kings talks about all his elite men. And when you read that, you're like, wow, man, this is crazy. And then yet, he's sitting here strumming on a harp and writing his own song. I mean, he's a poet. And he's a warrior. I and mean, what, what more could you ask? He's a king. And yet a shepherd. He's got a soft touch for the sheep and, and, and can still be hard-nosed to his administration. And to his people. David. And from David, God makes a promise to David in 2 Samuel. And he says this to David. This is after David sins. God says, 
because you've repented, I'm going to let you stay in, in power. And I'll tell you what. David says, I, I want to build you a house, God. You know, I, I live in this big old fat house, mansion, and, and you're, you're still dwelling in a tent. And at this point, there's still a tabernacle. He says, I want, I want to build you a big house. I live in a big house. I want to build you a big house. And God says, no, you're not going to build me a house. Instead, I'm going to build you a house. And this house that I build for you, David, will last forever. <laughs> he says, David, one of your sons is going to rule on the throne for all eternity. Hey, David said, man, I get to help produce that. That is awesome. Man, it's not going to be a hundred years. It's going to be a little more than a hundred years, David. It'll be about a thousand years, and one will come who won't be like the other kings who were selfish. Won't be like the other kings who did not serve God, did not worship God, did not point the people toward. Instead, this king will come and submit himself to his enemies to be killed. He will be the servant of all. And he will give up his life. But because of that, his kingdom will last forever. And he is the king. He is seated on His throne right now. You may not be able to see it, but you better start seeing it with the eye of faith because He is the one in charge of this thing, not you and not me. One of the best confessions you can make is, I am, I am not God. <laughs> he is God, I am not. David, interestingly, the blind people in Jesus' day... They don't even see Jesus coming. They hear that He's coming. And guess what they proclaim? Son of David! Can't see. Have mercy on me! Son of David! Have... And they say, be quiet! What are you talking about? Son of David! And they cry out louder. <coughs> Son of David. Son of David. 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 We get David right here. They can't even see. And yet they're proclaiming the Son of David. And these disciples of His, they can see, and yet they can't see with the eye of faith, can they? They still don't know who this guy is, Jesus. <coughs> and so, you go from, in the, book of, in, in the book of Ruth, you go from chapter 1 where you get famine. Chapter 1, where you get barrenness. Chapter 1, where you get isolation. To chapter 4, where you get plenty. Famine to plenty. Barren to fruitful. And then isolated to a community. To a large community. To a community that will last for all of eternity. And Naomi, I'll end with this. Naomi, then Naomi, verse 8, 16, 16. Then Naomi took the child and pressed him, is the Hebrew. Pressed him against her bosom. Now just think of this. She's lost everything, right? They've been poor, and now here's a son. There's hope. Again, I told you, in our society we say, oh, here's a son. Oh gosh, there's all my money. No, here it means you made money. It means you've got a heritage. It means you have an inheritance. It means you have descendants. It means your name will now be carried along instead of you dying and going away. And that's it. Poof, you were gone. 
Instead, now my four little boys can carry on the DAG name just like Pappy asked us to do, right? Like I said last week. Not only that, they can carry on what their father was like. They will, won't they? No matter what I tell them about myself, they know the real me. They know me more than you do because they live with me. And they one day will carry on my name just as I've carried on Pappy's name and my father's name. They will line up in that same tradition and so too do we. Naomi, as she presses that little baby up against her, a dream come true. Notice it says, <laughs> this is awesome, look at this. A son, verse 17, has been born to who? Not Ruth. Yeah. Naomi. The one who was called, who told you to call her bitter, now is filled with joy. Now it's Naomi's son. She nurses this boy. She, they both help in raising... This is a lot of first. Boaz's first baby, Ruth, and now Naomi, first-time grandparent. Exciting stuff right here. And, and, and I can't help but think, a thousand years down the line, really maybe 1,300 years down the line, another old fellow will hold another baby, his name being Zechariah, in the temple. He'll lift him up to God in dedication at eight days old after He circumcises him who is Christ the Lord. He says, now that my eyes have seen the promise of God, I can go home. I can go home because of what? A baby. A baby. What does Psalm 8 say? Out of the mouth of babies and nursing infants, God establishes His strength in the world. Through babies. His army is made of babies. (laughs) And one baby in particular who we we will be celebrating for the next four weeks His coming to earth to save us, to rescue us, to be for us our superhero and save the city. Let me ask you this morning, are you in a famine? Do you feel in your spiritual life, barren, that, you, that you're not producing fruit for God in His kingdom? Do you feel isolated, alone? Let me tell you, just like Naomi, you can be filled. You can be fruitful. Yes, you. You can be a part of a community that is larger than what you just see here. We're just the tip of an iceberg of people meeting all over the world today in the name of this baby who becomes our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the Son of none other than David. <laughs> who Ruth brings about because of her obedience. Do you want that to be your life? Call on His name. His name saves Because it's more powerful, again, words, it's more powerful than anything in this world. Jesus. 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 Sweetest name I know. Amen.